this is uh, a passage from a letter that the 25-year-old Karl Marx wrote to his friend Arnold Rouge in 1843. Uh, Marx was replying to a previous letter in which Rouge uh, proclaimed himself an atheist and a vigorous supporter of the, quote, new philosophers. The reform of consciousness consists entirely of making the world aware of its own consciousness, in arousing it from its dream of itself, in explaining its own actions to it. Like Fairbach's critique of religion, our whole aim can only be to translate religious and political problems into their self-conscious human form. Our program must be the reform of consciousness not through dogmas, but by analyzing mystical consciousness obscure to itself, whether it appear in religious or political form. It will then become plain that the world has long since dreamed of something of which it needs only to become conscious for it to possess it in reality. It will then become plain that our task is not to draw a sharp mental line between past and future, but to complete the thought of the past. Lastly, it will become plain that mankind will not begin any new work, but will consciously bring about the completion of its old work. From the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, it's Rob here. Greetings from Highlands Bunker Studio. Our show today is one that Super Producer Carl and I are uh, very proud and excited to do for everyone, um, even though uh, a lot of you continue to enjoy this show for free. As I said, we can see you, but be that as it may, uh, let's, let's have at it. Um, introducing first our comrade and friend, uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, uh, whose very first book, The British Marxist Historians, will be out soon in a brand new third edition. Uh, Harvey J.K., thank you so much for always taking the time to support us. Thank you. And by the way, when I sent you that, that quote from Marx, it was not intended that you should have to introduce this, this, this episode of uh, Highland's Bunker, but thank you. Well, I, I just, um, I thought it was really apt for the idea of the... Of, of, a, of a history uh, like the one we're going to discuss today, uh, because speaking of first books, um, also joining us today is Kim Kelly. Uh, Kim is an independent labor journalist who you probably know from dispatches from many labor demonstrations and strike actions across the country, including in Alabama, where she's covered the Amazon union fight and the Warrior Met coal strike there. Um, Kim has a new book coming out. April 26th, called Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and I'm delighted to welcome Kim Kelly to the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Thank Hello, you. Kim. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad yeah. we're making it work. Yeah, very, very, very pumped about it. Um, I, I didn't get far in the book before I found something we can talk about to kick this off, because um, right in the prologue, um, you talk about coming from a union family. Um, your father uh, was in Madison in the 2011 protests against governor and uh, close friend of, of Harvey's, actually, uh, Scott Walker's, and the right to work. <laughs> Those, guys are, those guys are tight, tight, tight. Um, but um, I guess um, you guys, at least your father and Harvey's paths probably crossed, because I know you were up there um, fighting against the same uh, right to work shenanigans um, as, as Kim's dad. Yeah, but from here, it's down there. 
down. Oh, yes. Yeah. For, I'm thinking from here, it's up there. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I think there might have been either. Maybe I, I wrote that sentence poorly, or maybe there's a type of thing. My dad definitely, he went and was part of protests about all of that nonsense, but he went to our state capital in Jersey, in Trenton. Uh, so he was still out there, but we didn't have going to Wisconsin money. So but <laughs> his union put that out there. He was part of it. I remember him coming home and telling me about it because it's still pretty far from where we lived, but it wasn't quite that far. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. I, I'm laughing in part because I don't know if you remember. I, I did the same thing you did. I actually sent Kim a note when I first got the copy, the galleys. Yeah. And I said, I didn't know you're from Wisconsin. <laughs> and oh, and the funny part is that I'm from New Jersey, so that <laughs> Wait, I didn't know that. Which part? I'm from North Jersey, Bergen oh, County. I'll forgive you, I guess. I'm from South Jersey. Well, I sense that since Trenton wouldn't have been that far from where, where you live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm from the Pine Barrens, which is a little out of the way from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we we go through there to go to the shore, and I know um, I, I didn't want to mention, uh, you also now reside in a place where I have uh, strong ancestral roots, um, South Philadelphia. Um, so that's very cool. Yeah, my um, my grand, my fraternal grandparents um were from there um so it's pretty pretty cool yeah it's i went all over the world and ended up an hour away across the bridge <laughs> nice i would just uh, want to point out that i have very strong ancestral roots in philadelphia by the name of thomas Paine. uh yes 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 i know you never you, you never uh miss a chance to, to slip that in for sure i love it um so let's just begin with the overview of the book. Um, I saw a video online of Kim opening um, the box of the newly minted hardcover first editions. And the best part of the video was off camera. Uh, your partner was just so, so hype. He was hyping it, like going crazy and just getting so into it that he was like, this is your book. You did it. This is awesome. Look at it. It's a tome. It's a goddamn textbook. And you were like, you're like, babe, no one, no one wants to read a textbook. <laughs> I know it was so 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 great I actually was going to refer to him as Mr. Kim Kelly but um, uh, <laughs> I would love that <laughs> uh, but uh, while it's not a textbook um, it absolutely I think should start appearing in syllabi across the country uh, for American history because yes because uh, you know while we meet some of the big names that I think people are maybe familiar with just from their regular history, Mother Jones, Cesar Chavez, A. Philip Randolph. Um, we, we come across them, but what the story is is the people at the grassroots fighting, like truly fighting to improve their condition through organizing at work. And so maybe I, you can just talk about that general concept and, and how the, it's, through the book it's, it's, you know, it's brought out through these stories. Uh, and also maybe Professor Kay can talk about the, the teachability of it because I think it's excellent. Well, I mean, we'll see how long it takes for him to ban it, right? But <laughs> I, I was thinking of it, well, I guess I conceived of it and hopefully executed it as uh, like a marginalized people's history of labor in the U.S. So it's a book that focuses specifically on the experiences and, and voices and struggles of women and queer folks and people of color, disabled workers, sex workers, incarcerated workers, immigrant workers, workers of color all across the board, because those are the stories that I've always been the most interested in. And those are the stories that I always had the hardest time tracking down. Uh, it seems like there are so many people, whether they were labor organizers or strike leaders or rank and file workers that contributed such massive amounts 
of just energy and impact in this movement, but for whatever reason, they were pushed to the margins or left in the shadows or cut out of the story altogether. So when I had the opportunity to write a whole book, I figured I had my chance to actually dig into those stories and try and follow the breadcrumbs and go treasure hunting, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I I enjoy um, how how sort of far it went back all the way to sort of like colonial sort of mills uh, and hearing those stories because I'm sort of into that uh, that sort of colonial pre independence time. I know uh, uh, Harvey is as well. Yeah, but I, shout out Benjamin Lay in the 1700s. Even had to slip my boy in. Yeah, very very good. Um, and I and I think a lot of these stories are again as we alluded to in the beginning ways that we can things we can apply today because there's an examination of like internal tensions that existed all the way back in the beginning all the way to you know colonial uh, america um you know anybody who was sort of the other or uh, shouldn't have been in that role uh, mostly it was like younger women at that time but also you know emancipated free men then it became asian immigrants and chinese uh, but also filipino and, and then it became migrant workers from mexico coming in to you know sort of break strikes and there's always sort of this tension within all of these stories and i found that one of the biggest sort of takeaways is to start to think about how we can apply those lessons to the same sort of tensions we see today yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's there's you always get sold this idea of the American dream of the bootstraps of you know we're all equal, we're all equal uh, in the eyes of the law, and we obviously know that's not the case. And there's always been this impulse from the people in power to try and isolate and separate and divide workers based on who they felt was worthwhile, whose labor they valued, and whose they didn't. Like you said, back in the beginning of the book, we see like these young white women from from the farms coming in to work in these dark satanic mills, and realizing, oh no, this is this isn't working out great for us at all. We need to do something about this. And then just throughout history, like as you said, different groups found themselves in the position of being like, okay, uh, our bosses clearly think they can exploit us and get away with treating us poorly and paying us less than other people. What are we going to do about it? And I think that's a really important lesson to hold on to, to see what those folks did, because people are still dealing with that same level of exploitation and exclusion right now. Like how many, you know, political attack ads do you see on the TV or on YouTube talking about, you know, immigrant workers coming in to take our jobs? That is the same kind of, I don't want to curse, but that's the same kind of nonsense that's been plaguing the movement and plaguing this country since the jump. And it doesn't help anybody but the people in charge and people in power that have all the money. Like, it doesn't help the workers and it doesn't help the working class. We're stronger together, not when we're pulled apart and divided. Well, speaking of that, maybe you can um, add a little bit of sort of historical context um, about this internal tension and how it's always used as a wedge, um, as Kim said, be, to try to keep people from having a consciousness together. Like, that's the worst. That's what they're actually defending against, is, is figuring out that that solidarity and that consciousness together um, is actually the thing that's going to turn the tables. Really. Okay. You're talking to me now, right? Yes. Okay. So let, let me start off by saying that I, when you said teachability, I have to say that 
something that comes up that I mean, I'm not in the classroom this past year because the pandemic drove me out, but because they want to do online teaching as in lectures. But it's interesting to think about the last sort of 10 years of of my department's history, Democracy and Justice Studies program. And, and one of the things that was, it always comes up because we were decidedly inclusive in a decidedly progressive department. We, you know, Scott Walker showered lots of awards upon us, actually, as long as he brought his name up. Um, so we, we were essentially a group of a small department, progressive people. And the question of inclusiveness came up and all the time about, you know, the books one used in order to make sure that people could see themselves in history. And, and we were not all historians. Some of us historians, some were sociologists, some were political scientists, and some we were a social scientist, very grounded in history. And, you know, there are a lot of good labor histories that have been produced over the years. And in every generation, you can see the degree to which the politics of the day shape those histories. But I, I think Kim has done something really remarkable, actually extraordinary in the sense that we talk about timing. Not only does she have the, the, the mood of the moment or captures the spirit of the moment, it's also that, I, and I'm, I'm going to actually read, if you don't mind, my the blurb that I delivered oh, yeah, to her that was, publisher. Oh, yeah, that was so nice. Okay. Go ahead. Because I think it, because it, I want to make clear that when, when I got the galleys and I saw a, a whole variety of really, really nice endorsements, and I thought, well, you know, I could write a very academic endorsement which says this should be a required reading in every first year, you know, sort of American <laughs> history class. But I figure somebody else will probably come up with that. So I decided to take the political approach. But I do think that this very political approach will probably sort of capture the attention, if anyone bothers to see this or is, are able to see this, of the sort of the smart, progressive, left, radical scholar and, and professor and teacher, for that matter, in fact, I want to go one step further. I'm I'm not, as people have probably heard, I'm not a big, I'm not a fan of Howard Zinn's People's History. I want to make that clear. But this is the book that people could readily teach at university if they really want to reveal to their students the true diversity and the true, the word diversity is overplayed, the really remarkable and extraordinary extent of of radical activity among the working class okay so let me i'll just read this so this is what i said kim kelly has written a labor history for the 21st century the story of the american working class in all its beautiful diversity struggling against capital and the powers that be to realize the nation's promise of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness indeed the revolutionary promise of democracy Workers are rising anew, and if we truly want to rebuild and reinvigorate our solidarities and the labor movement, we should take to heart that promise and that story as we, too, fight like hell. And I, I really can't emphasize enough that if any academic is listening to this and they teach American history or labor history or just a damn good sociology course, perhaps, they really want to pay attention here because I learned a lot. I really did learn a lot. And I was really amazed... if if you don't mind my talking about the structure of the book, instead of laying out a simple chronological story of American labor, American workers, the American working class, Kim has done it thematically, okay, by way of 
not in fact even to say the kind of work sort of may not be even adequate to use so for example i know there's one is it the chapter on the movers yeah in, in which our mutual friend uh, sarah nelson appears i believe yes. right so it's a fact that it's also filled with a kind of set of surprises as you go along like <laughs> wow i didn't think about airline flight attendants as movers you know, of people. And yet, indeed, they're at the heart of the matter. So it, there's all of this sort of um, thematic chapters. And then within the chapters, there are those surprises. I will, however, question one thing. On oh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, no, no. You know, uh, Kim, you knew it wasn't going to, you knew this no, no, was no, going to no. go. I, I say this because, because when Kim goes back to write the second or third editions when they say, man, this is selling so well, you're going to have to give us a little update. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Am I wrong in saying, because I swear to you, I read the whole book. And when I finished, and I'm thinking of my very, very dear friend, John Shelton, who is a his labor historian and, and a historian of education. He writes about, first book he wrote was on teacher strikes back in the 70s. I'm thinking of Eric Blanc and his work on teacher strikes. There, is there a chapter? I don't think I saw it ran into teachers in here. Did I? No, because oh, like okay. you said, so many other people have written such brilliant and important works on educators <laughs> and their union. No, seriously, like that was my yeah. thought going into so much of this because I was like, okay, what? And like, there there are a lot of types of workers that don't show up, like healthcare workers. That's a whole gigantic topic, and I feel like other people have done a lot more reporting on that and done a lot more work on that, and they didn't quite fit into. I had this sort of amorphous. Uh, idea of who I wanted to put in there and I kept coming back towards people that work like with their hands like this blue collar whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. it, it was and that's sort of how I approached it even I didn't want to leave anybody out but I thought okay who what are the stories that I find myself gravitating towards where did I come from where do I feel the most affinity like where and also where can I do enough research and come from a place of knowledge where I won't have to start from square one like if I wanted to do a chapter on education that's a whole book that's several books and I feel like a lot more people pay attention to teachers unions and educators struggles than perhaps they do to coal miners or domestic workers or janitors, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I could definitely see, I could definitely see how you might say that. And I, I didn't offer it as a criticism. I just wanted to make sure that I somehow didn't fall asleep at any point because I oh, actually I found the book not. so filled. <laughs> no, no, because in fact, as I said, the book was so filled with surprises. And I often, you know, I often say to myself that uh, there must be another way to, to tell the story without having to go decade by decade by decade, which is generally the approach I would take because of the kinds of arguments I'm trying to make. That's really good. But here's something I want to ask you as a fellow historian and especially a fellow sort of left person. So I, in all the writings I've ever done, I always get to a point in the research and then the write-up where I feel like I'm so deeply embedded in the work that I'm actually somehow embedded in the moment of, of the story I'm telling. And I, and I always say to myself, Oh, if I could just flip us, if I could just change the past in this little way, think, Oh, things could have been remarkably different. Did, did you ever run into that? Where counterfactual. Yeah. Uh, but, but actually by changing the story and not just, but staying, you know, it's just because, 
shit, if you could avoid an, a, the killing of someone or the, or the execution of someone or the assassination of someone, and those are prime examples, but there are lots of other things. Did you run into that at any point? Oh, there are so many moments where I wish I could go back and wave a magic wand and save people from being hurt or being killed or from losing because that's part mm. of the whole story, right? Like a lot of the yeah. times we lose and like people go on these you know, these grueling strikes and they go undergo these heroic sacrifices and they try so hard and then they don't win. And I just wish that every, I mean, if everybody won all the time, the movement would look a whole lot different. Life would probably be a lot better for a lot of us. But even just thinking back to like LMA Wiggins or Nagi Daifula, who was murdered by cops when he was protecting workers on the picket lines during the sellable strike, like those are things that should not have happened. And they did. And there's still things like that happening to workers now who stand up for themselves and their coworkers. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to go a little further only because I remember um, we ha- we hosted the historian uh, Richard White from Stanford. And we talked about his book on Reconstruction in the Gilded Age. And so it was a big, very big book. Uh, the, the Republic for which it stands, it's called. It's the Oxford Press like American history book for that time. Oh boy, it's yeah, it's good, it's good. But I, I there's a, there's a long, long Not passage. Not as good as your book, however. <laughs> different, um, different. Um, there's a long passage in there, and I had never, you know, I, I had known that there was a homestead. There was violence at the homestead strike in, in, in Pennsylvania. I, I did not know to what extent, like how it all played out, and there's a pretty detailed account of it um, from the beginning of the labor dispute through through the end, and um, and I think people don't really know that the, the history of violence that's embedded in this fight that's even going on today, um, just with sort of thugs coming around, cars running into pickets, and things like that. Um, I, maybe you can talk to talk a little bit about. Uh, a little bit about that throughout the book and and yeah how we're seeing those same forces sort of manifest themselves today gosh i mean history loves to repeat itself doesn't it and it's all it always picks the worst times to do it like when uh, riot cops are beating the hell out of a group of protesters or coming in to break a strike or to arrest people who are not doing anything wrong who are exercising their rights i mean uh, even just going back to that, that example a few moments ago of Nagi Darfula, this young man, this young, I think 24-year-old Yemeni man who immigrated to the U.S. and became involved with the United Farm Workers and worked as a translator during their strike because there was a big Yemeni population in that area at the time, and they were on strike with a bunch of the Latino workers. And he, like, he was, wasn't doing anything wrong. He was standing around with a couple of strikers, and the cops started messing with them, and he stood up for them, and they bashed his skull in and dragged him away across the pavement, and he died. And, like, that's not the first or the last time police brutality has been part of a labor story or just state violence in general or, you know, state violence in blatant terms like that or in terms of who what kinds of things it turns a blind eye to like like we're talking about today in alabama this coal miner strike i've been covering for the past year over a year now uh, one of the most upsetting themes of the entire you know the entire ordeal has been the fact that company goons and scabs people who are not on the union side have been able to just run into people on the picket line and kind of operate with impunity and send people to the hospital 
at points, you know, witnesses have pointed cops in the direction of the perpetrator and the cops have done nothing. And that's happening right now in in America in 2021 and 2022. And it's it's hard to feel like, you know, it's just hard to hear about that because we're supposed to have these rights. We're supposed to be able to stand up for ourselves. But look what happens when we do. There's always this lurking looming dread of the state showing up and putting its boot on our necks or a bullet in our heads. Yeah. It, th- those stories I think um, just resonate with me because it's, it's a, it's a very visceral feeling that you have when you find out about these people who are, you know, just, you know, working class people trying to get a better life and they're putting themselves in, in danger to do it. And they always have, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a thing that um, we, we're seeing today. I, I know, I think at the at the end, I want to kind of close with some current events, but I will mention that, you know, they did uh, have uh, Christian Smalls and um, organizers that he was organizing with arrested just a few weeks before they won their uh, their their vote. Uh, but, yeah, it's happening all over the place. And, um, you know, so the the idea that it's a fight and the idea you have to fight like hell because we're in it is is absolutely accurate and people need to understand it. You know, there, there are dozens Dozens of, of folks who, who you bring to the reader's attention, some of whom we know, right, like Mother Jones, and some of who, and innumerable ones that, that we really don't know. So I'm gonna I want to get you into thinking about that kind of thing because I'm gonna pose this is gonna be a really down to earth question. Some kids can mm-hmm. ask you this sometime, and the question <laughs> is, name your three heroes in the course of your book. <sighs> Heroes in if we accept that heroes can be flawed and we can love and respect them. Oh, anyway, oh, I, oh it would be <laughs> Yeah, we're on board with that. <laughs> I would have to say I didn't ask you to name three saints. I'm talking three heroes. <laughs> well, three people that come to mind immediately are Lucy Parsons and Maria Marino and Margot St. James. Mm-hmm. And they're all women that lived in very different times and operated in pretty different circles, but all sacrificed everything for other people and for the cause that they felt was right. Lucy Parsons, of course, who was, well, she, she's such a fascinating character. She presented her, herself one way while more recent scholarship shows that she was somebody different. She essentially, she was a black woman who was born on a plantation in Virginia, who through a variety of twists and turns ended up in Chicago in the late 1880s. Well, she got there a little early, but the late 18, the late 1880s is really when things popped off. She became involved in labor organizing and the anarchist community. She became a speaker and a writer. She was a firebrand. The cops were terrified of her. Her husband and several other anarchists were murdered by the state for their alleged involvement in the Haymarket affair. Like she was just a firecracker and she was probably the most infamous, one of the most infamous women in America at that time. And specifically probably the most infamous woman of color. And she was just an incredible figure. I still like, I'm going to get her tattooed on me one day. (laughs) And then we go to Maria Marino who was the Mexican and indigenous woman who basically became uh, the first, I think she was the first paid organizer for United Farm Workers right when they were starting. Like she was in the thick of it. She was a mother of 11 children. She became involved in labor organizing because her family was starving and she needed, she knew that there had to be something she could do. She had to go public. She had to get involved. And she was instrumental in organizing farm workers 
And she, I mean, she was a contemporary of Cesar Chavez, but we know a lot about him and not very much about her. And then fast forwarding decades later, not too many decades, actually, maybe a little bit further, a woman named Margot St. James, who alongside several other women, including Gloria Lockett, organized a group called Coyote, which was the first sex workers' rights organization in the U.S., and really kind of put that struggle on, on the map in terms of public perception and fundraising and media. She was this, this uh, incredibly savvy self-promoter, and she really got the cause out there and really got attention on this group of workers who had been ignored and stigmatized and marginalized basically throughout their entire existence. And the after effects of the, uh, the work that she did and the people she worked with did, we're still seeing that in today's current movement for sex workers' rights. I mean, there are uh, over a dozen dancers at the Star Garden Strip Club in North Hollywood who are on strike, I think their second week of strike, right now because they're a part of Strippers United which is a labor union that they started and it's all it's all connected but those three really jump out to me as people i'm really excited for people to learn more about <laughs> long answer i know that was a great oh, no, no. answer I, I, I was hoping you were going to tell people exactly who these folks were great yeah that's great because it was that was such a, a, a i appreciate you asking that question harvey because i <clears throat> I was wondering how I was going to like figure out because there's so many fascinating people that you know certainly if if you learn something you know how much I must have learned because I I'm not there was a lot of stories I wasn't even familiar with at all and and to get that sort of grassroots um, feel for it uh, and be able to connect with all of these characters and and again a, along the way you know there are people that we discuss uh, very often like uh, a Philip Randolph um, but. You know, there was a whole uh, cadre of organizers, activists, support people, um, you know, working with them. Another thing I think that people don't fully grasp when they're sort of when they're trying to bring them into sort of consciousness in this sort of labor organizing space is that historically the support that people have gotten not only from family members, but also just from their community. You know, from the other businesses that are in the community that are supported by the workers in the community at, say, bigger bigger places, mines, factories, shop floors, that kind of thing. And um, and that that kind of solidarity is great, too. I love I love those stories of sort of the community and family sort of coming together. And we see that to this day. We see, you know, having having translators uh, bringing food to events uh, that people enjoy same kind of stuff so yeah i i don't know i mean is there uh, are are there specific stories uh about that sort of community solidarity that you that you want to talk about well i think I, I need to refresh my own memory right to talk about this but that just that question makes me think about the cores boycott in the 70s through the 90s where we saw the lgbt community i guess at that point it would have just been thought of as the gay community and the labor community and uh, communities of color all kind of came together and were just fed up with the course company's discriminatory hiring policies and the racism and homophobia that it showed. And they launched this boycott and local bodega owners and well, maybe not bodegas because it was on the West Coast, corner stores and liquor store owners, like they bought in and they went along with the boycott. And I don't even know if that boycott was ever really formally dropped. But all it took was a couple organizers who knew the community 
going around and being like, hey, this is what's happening. This is how you can help us. Are you down? And sometimes that's all it takes. I mean, that's that's what the Amazon labor union folks are doing right now in Staten Island, just talking to people and showing them, I hear you, we're, we're, there's not that many differences between the two of us. We can take these bastards down if we work together. Yeah, I just revisited... Um... Revisited an interview that uh, our, Harvey and I's sort of mutual uh, friend, acquaintance, friend for Harvey, acquaintance of mine, uh, Michael Brooks did with uh, with Chris Smalls, uh, I think about a week after he was fired. So it was in April, the first week, he was fired the last, I think the last week of March or the first week of April, right in the in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I think they got their their winning vote. I think it was announced the two years to the day after he got fired. Okay, yeah, and so uh, Michael Brooks is is speaking with him, and just you know, this is all new information. Nobody knows this guy. Just came on the scene trying to organize people because of basically because of COVID stuff, and uh, you know, they talked about a one. It was a one week boycott of Amazon just one week and you know it it sounded ridiculous I guess to some people and especially during COVID when you could only get stuff delivered um but yeah I mean people really need to start thinking about you know the ease of getting you know a, a tube of toothpaste delivered to your home in a day you know what that actually what it takes to do that um and it was just interesting to me that you mentioned that Coors boycott uh, because I think we're going to have to start thinking about that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Amazon, uh, and it was, and I was reminded of it going back and 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 listening to to Michael Brooks' uh, interview, uh, Chris Smalls from you know two years ago. Yeah, it's going to take sacrifice to win, and I mean, I think that we've seen lots of different calls to boycott Amazon over the years, and honestly, like the more the merrier. Like we should <laughs> we should try to divest our own resources as much as we can. But it's also, you know, what is it? There's that adage that like one person, like like uh, individual consumer behavior can't actually make as much of a dent as like collective behavior and policy and laws and all that, all that other stuff. Like if I stop, I mean, I don't, I don't buy things from Amazon anyway, but um, if everyone in my neighborhood stopped buying things from Amazon, Jeff Bezos could still go to space whenever he wants, right? Like it's gotta, yeah. we got to figure out something else. No, I know I, I completely agree. That's an excellent point because I I don't believe that individual consumer choices actually mean that much. Um, although you know I I also think that collective boycotts, um, you know, if they're if they're pointed, especially in Amazon, if everybody could agree on the week that everybody did it, maybe that would work. But yeah, I I I don't I don't while while I think they're a good way to build sort of like community solidarity, I I don't think widespread it's it's a really effective tool for the reasons that you said. I, I agree. Right. Yeah, we should be talking about nationalizing Amazon, right? I mean it's just I mean, we could that I mean, especially if if if, if being in the pandemic and being in quarantine and lockdown for that period of time and having basically everything to if, if there wasn't a better reason to nationalize the whole the whole gambit. Um, I don't know what it was, but of course you're preaching to the choir here. I think with the with the four of us. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, like not to advocate for anything, but just to note something that's interesting is that some other countries, the government just sent people food every day and sent them supplies and just 
did that because they had the infrastructure. And wouldn't it be nice if we could implement or acquire the kind of infrastructure here that other countries have to take care of people when they need things? Yeah, it's, uh, again, go back to what we were sort of chatting about in the beginning. It's, it's, it seems really um, sort of metaphysical almost, the, the Marx quote, right? But it's, but it's actually true. It's just true. You, it, the consciousness is out there. The, an, the answers are there. The promises have been made. The theories are there. Um, it, it's just um, the condition is so that people can very easily ignore it, I guess. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's got to be broken. And that's one way to do it is to tell the stories to, to, to especially of the victories, but also of the losses because, you know, you learn something from that uh, for sure. I think the folks, the Amazon folks in Bessemer uh, have learned stuff from, you know, from their fight and their, their struggle and they're still going at it. So, And it's not over down there. I mean, it's, it's kind of anyone's game at this point. We're still waiting on those challenge ballots and like 21 different ULPs. Like it's, it's not going to be a neat uh, a neat and tidy ending there no matter what. And who's to say it's even going to be an ending? Even if they don't win this round, there's nothing stopping them from trying again. Like, sometimes it takes a little while to get to where you want to go. But, I mean, I was just down there last week, and I had lunch with one of the worker organizers there, a really young, really energetic and dedicated kid. Oh, I shouldn't say kid. A young man who's like 20 years old named Isaiah Thomas. And he was so fired up. He was like, I'm ready for the next fight. Like, maybe I'll get a job at Starbucks. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. Like, he was, he could not wait to keep fighting. And there are a lot of Isaiahs out there. I mean, that Isaiah, Isaiah, he wants to be a labor lawyer now because of the experience he had with organizing, with talking to his coworkers. And just thinking about the amount of people that he's going to be able to help by taking on that career. That's incredible. That's almost worth it just for that one person because of so, what kind of an impact he's going to be able to have. And he's not alone. He's one of at least a thousand people in Bessemer, Alabama, that really want a union, really value their coworkers. And it's it's a start and it's important. You know, even if they don't win by some you know electoral metric, like they've still built something special there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what what what's the feeling there after the the independent union, the Amazon labor union success in Staten Island, um, uh, you know, the, the organizing efforts, I think, were because of um, location and conditions and all of the things that, you know, were, were different in the two places, obviously. But um, has there been any takeaways or any sort of like um, lessons learned uh, in, in going forward further in Bessemer? Because I, I know the energy's there and I know, as you said, um, so much organizing has already been done that just can just build on that and and go again and again because yeah sometimes it takes multiple times. I think there is really. Hmm? Go ahead, Jim. I was going to ask you, do you know the the ethnic composition uh, of the uh, Bessemer folks, the, the the workers down there? Do you know what the well, ethnic? Not, black folks. Yeah, you know, I it's interesting to consider why why Chris Smalls and his crew had the success they had. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot, but on a theoretical level, actually. And I was thinking that the, the very thing that at first would have seemed an obstacle, the, the, uh, the real diversity in the Staten Island warehouse and how you know, one can imagine the clustering of the different ethnicities, 
okay, which is not atypical of, of anywhere in America. And the fact that instead of it being a homogenous, like all white or black or, you know, something like that, in some ways, if, if when you can cross the line, I don't mean the picket line, I mean the, the ethnic line, you can discover that the very solidarities amongst ethnic, within ethnic groups, if you can bring more than, you know, a, a couple together in some kind of effort, it actually provides an incredible stamina to the project because those folks already have a sense of solidarity. It's a matter of whether you can get them to be sort of cohesive beyond the one ethnic group. And I worry that perhaps maybe, you know, not, not that, you know, not, not that the workers down south don't have their own solidarities, but I just wonder to what extent the thing we sometimes think of as an obstacle may actually have been a force for change as in the case there. And, and related to that, I, I keep thinking about to what extent, um, you know, immigrants come to America and however tough they find it, it's also the case that they really do want to glom on to the whole idea of the American promise, even if it's not fully theirs. And you can't help but imagine that there are, there are ways of engaging that kind of deep deep aspiration. People don't travel around the world to live somewhere else in spite of the obstacles unless there's a, a really deep yearning that exists. And, you know, I, we really ought to take, we ought to try to make sense of it. Because when I listened to Chris and the others talk about how they did so, you know, food, the other night they all talked about food. That was like this primary oh, vehicle to bring people together. And, yeah. you know, and in fact, the food had to be ethnically grounded for each group and yet then they figured out how to transcend it so anyway i'm i'm talking aloud here but those are the kind of things that i try to figure out i mean yeah, there's I'll so much it, historical uh, oh go ahead. no go, i was just gonna i'm gonna let you go my two points are gonna be quick i think what you said is correct uh, about the, the the food and bringing sort of a more people together that were maybe clustered but i also think you listen to uh to chris smalls talk about um being live basically living at the bus stop, right? Because public transportation, I think, is way is probably far more saturated in New York than it's going to be in a place uh, in a, a suburban or rural place. Um, so I think that had I think that helps. And I wonder what and I don't know whether it helped or it hurt, but I wonder what Kim's uh, position is on the idea of sort of national organizers and national sort of uh, spotlight and. Uh, and a national group sort of organizing in Bessemer at Amazon where uh, Chris Smalls and his comrades went with sort of a, an independent group. And so they were, a, they, I don't know whether they were able to do things differently, but it was certainly a different approach. Well, I was, yeah, was going to pull out a couple of historical points, but now just to follow uh, this kind of the path you've just opened up talking about, yeah, the national versus local. I mean, I don't think it's entirely fair to say that, you know, well, not that saying that you're saying this, but I've seen people say that RWSU just kind of swooped in and set up shop and there's a bunch of New York people hanging out in Bessemer. And like, in, in fairness, like the operation was run out of Birmingham, Alabama. That's where the Mid-South Council has its office. That's where everyone met. Like people, people knew one another. You know, the only reason that RWSU got involved in the first place is because one of the workers, Daryl Richardson, called them and said he wanted to he wanted help organizing. And it, it's not like um, 
it was like this sort of outsider versus insider approach because the workers were still in charge when it came to organizing in Bessemer. It was the, the workers themselves and then worker organizers that were brought in from other local areas, like poultry plants where RWSU had a foothold. Like it was, it, it, at least being down there with folks, didn't feel like, like that different, but it was certainly different infrastructure and different people running it, making the calls. There's obviously a difference between like full-on solidarity union versus what you would call maybe a, a service union or business union, whatever, however you want to paint that. I think there there's more similarities there than there are differences, even even though things worked out differently and geography and culture had a little bit to do with it too. But going back, I had one little fun historical story from the book that Harvey's uh, thoughts kind of stirred up, just talking about the importance of reaching across ethnic and racial and linguistic lines and building power and solidarity together. It made me think about this strike in, and it's going to be really nerdy, bear with me, but 1946 um, in Hawaii, when sugar plantation workers who were organized into a union, they were, I think it's ILO, I always mess up the acronym, ILW, the longshoremen and, and yeah. warehouse workers, they, um, they were organized into there. And at that point, the folks working in the fields is, is a very diverse array of predominantly Asian immigrants from different countries, as well as Puerto Rican folks and a couple black folks, um, some stray Europeans. There are people from all over the place, but it was mostly Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and Filipino. And the bosses made a point of separating those workers into different camps. Chinese workers are here, Filipino workers are here, etc., because they didn't want people to build that solidarity and cross those lines. So during the strike, one of the reasons that it was successful is they actively actively like mixed that up and they had people speaking in a variety of languages they cooked together there's one cute little anecdote I, I can't even remember if I put it in but I remember reading it and just kind of smiling that um the Japanese workers really really liked the way that the Filipino workers made rice <laughs> and they kind of bonded over that and just yeah talking about food mm -hmm. and feeding one another and, and and building power over the dinner table there's such a long precedent for that and I mean, they they nailed that formula with in Staten Island, and hopefully going forward, we'll see more barbecues and less, you know, boring meetings. <laughs> well, I'm all for that. I'm a I'm a grill man, so any any more barbecues, I'm that's something where I can contribute for sure. There you go. Everyone has a, a role to play. Yes. Um, so I, I want I, I know there's been a, a few um, strikes and and other big victories. That maybe you, I'd like to just at least sort of note and have us comment on a little bit, um, and they sort of they're sort of across the board. Um, the Teamsters uh, vote was recently, and the 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 faction of more radical uh, Teamsters will now be, I guess, running the American Teamsters, uh, which is exciting. Um, we've had strikes at Nabisco, at Kellogg's, at John Deere, um, nurses in Massachusetts, teachers of Minneapolis, all over the place. Not to mention, and again, I, I don't know whether um, Kim, you have a crystal ball, but this book, this book is coming out as as there's just been a surge of Starbucks cafes uh, and their baristas and all of their support workers unionizing. There's it seems like. There's another one or two a day of 20, 25 people just wanting more say in, in the work that they do. 
And um, yeah, it's it's been quite a surge. And uh, you know, I don't know if there's a, a particular one of those you want to comment on, or just this surge in general. Uh, and 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 sort of, uh, I guess, the, let's sell this book. <laughs> I mean, gosh, the timing is really. I suppose I couldn't have picked a better time to release this book. And the funny thing is, I didn't. I didn't. It's purely coincidence, at least in in terms of me being doing this thing at this time. My whole goal when I sat down to write it was like I want it to come out around May Day. That was the goal. We like we the the very end of the editing process was a total crunch because I got a little extension when it came to writing because it turns out it takes a long time to write a book, and I was just resolute like we have to put it out for International Workers Day because hopefully people will be thinking about this stuff. And now fast forward a year later after we've had the the brutal beginning of the pandemic and the discourse around essential workers and then the ensuing drop off in public care about workers' conditions and the idea of the great resignation and the idea, and we lived through Striketober and Striketember, which kind of petered off in terms of cool names, but it's still going. And now we've got this this upswing in public interest and support for workers unionizing at these massive corporations that they recognize. Like everyone knows Starbucks, everyone knows Amazon. And I think that has helped get them a little bit of uh, this necessary attention and support because every workplace that organizes needs support, needs some people to have their back. And I think we've seen that happening really on an incredible scale with these two in particular. But um, yeah, it just seems like there's so much has happened in the past year and there's been such a shift in the way that people and like specifically workers view their lives and their labor and the value of those two things and have kind of started looking around and thinking like, okay, like clearly the government's not going to take care of me. My boss isn't going to take care of me. This, this world is getting less and less safe and less and less sustainable by the day. Uh, something's got to give. What can I do? And more and more people are turning to labor and to organizing and to unionizing and taking that power back. And it just feels like the greatest gift that I'm able to put this little book out there and hope and well, not really a praying kind of gal, but hope really, really hard that people who are newly interested in labor and in working class history and in learning about where we where we came from and how we're going to get to where we're going to go, like that they pick this up and they see themselves in it because there are a lot of labor books out there, as Harvey said earlier. But this one, I tried to make it so that pretty much anybody can pick it up and find something in there that kind of that hits them, that they can connect with, like whoever they are, wherever they come from, whatever their identity is. Like I wanted to try and put something together that shows that they belong here too. Like this is their movement too. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I, that was one of the big things I took out of it as well uh, was, was that <clears throat> the people need to see themselves in it. Like the idea is to motivate you know, some you know a, a worker to to think about organizing, and if workers at like Starbucks organize, people know what that is. It's like the person, the coffee person. Like they they know they're in there, they're helping them every day, whatever it is. And so there's a there's a connection there. And you know, no offense to uh, to Harvey, but if you write an academic book, sometimes you know it's a little bit it's a little bit highfalutin. It's not for everybody, uh, so but 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 this uh, I think, if that, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. See, obscene gestures are being done now. Uh, look, I read I read the British Marxist historians. I loved it. 
But I mean, n- not everybody's me. You know what I mean? Like I'm like a class trader dweeb who's like running up on running up on fifty with a with a studio in his house. You know, I mean, <laughs> I I understand that I'm not the uh, the the not necessarily the intended audience. I'll give you an example. Maybe you guys can uh, comment on this uh, more sort of casually as we cruise into the end of this. Uh, I was at a um, at a, a, a private uh, function uh, for a comrade and a friend of ours uh, here in Delaware, and I was talking to a few other sort of like organizers, and we were talking. It was the day the Amazon uh, Union uh, vote came in. And so we were talking about it. And I said, you know, I've said it from the beginning. You know, a lot of us are sort of like, you know, we're more like come from the professional world and we're doing a lot of stuff. But like we can't all we need to do is be ready when this happens. We have to be ready to do everything we can, whether it's bringing pizzas to the picket line or writing, you know, writing op eds or giving people rides or whatever. We just need to be ready for that. We need to be like cognizant of making sure that we're there to do whatever we can do when the work when, when the workers get inspired and they start to organize and and I think that that's important and I think that's why this book is important because it shows um, the, the people on the grass you know in the grassroots doing that in in so many different areas that you know sometimes people don't think about these areas being even work you know what I mean? And so anything that can can make that connection to people, I think, is incredibly important. Because, yeah, I think people, some people think of unions as like, oh, it's like the iron workers of the, or, or auto workers or, you know, sort of that kind of stuff. And uh, historically, it's never, it never has been. Um, and now it's not. So, you know, people need to be reminded of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, I think it was a success I mean, I, I think it, you, it was really a great book, and I hope people go out and they get it. Well, thank you so much. I really I really tried very hard. I'm, uh, <laughs> it's my first book. Like, I'm not an academic. I wish it seems like fun. Maybe one of these days I'll try it. But I'm just, um, like, I came out of the music industry. I, I just kind of fell into this world just by helping organize my workplace, I guess, which is one of the most organic ways to do it and it's just been such an incredible journey I mean journey is kind of a hokey word but it's just been an incredible experience over the past gosh I guess maybe six years really exploring this world and getting into it and learning about the history and getting to a point where I can share some of the cool stuff I found with all these other people that hopefully will find some inspiration and some value in it because I put a lot of love into it and I just, yeah, I hope people like it. And I hope that they read it on the bus and on the subway and on their way to a picket line. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I also love the cover art. We have a uh, a, a small local uh, website that we run, sort of like a leftist uh, local magazine online. And uh, our, our logo is also the uh, the bullhorn. So. Yeah, I wanted to have yeah. it be a rose at first, but it didn't look right, and I I acquiesced. I was like, "You guys are the designers. I will just do whatever you say." Like, that's, yeah, I think that's they were right on my this vibe. One. I think they were right on this one. I think. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm gonna. It's pretty cool. I wanted to make sure it looked different. Like, I'm pretty different when it comes to like what you think of as an author, like a labor person. And I was like, well, I gotta, you know, gotta keep it a little weird. <laughs> 
Kim, uh, I, I know you've been traveling. Uh, I know that's, uh, you know, you're not, you're not feeling great, but I, I want to really um, tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it was it's been a real thrill for for me to to be able to like just chat with you and and uh, and have you on read the book. Uh, I guess because um, I feel like I don't know. I feel like uh, I talked about this wave of labor actions, but I feel like I connect you and your reporting with the wave. So like the wave and your stuff is all the same. To, like it's it's all happening sort of together, and it's extremely exciting. And uh, I'm just glad you you could take the time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. And for the professor to come in and grace us with his insights, I know you're busy too. Well, folks, uh, there you have it. Another uh, another cracking episode. And just like uh, here in the Bunker Studio, on every picket line, in every union hall, at every organizing meeting, left is best. Left is best.